Our Father, we again, we sing these songs about the resurrection and we remember that the resurrection is authenticated, it's displayed every time your people gather to worship you on Sunday, every time a sinner is called to faith in your dear and beloved Son and receives in Him life eternal, life everlasting. The resurrection indeed is the fulfillment of your promise, even though the full fulfillment of that promise is yet to come to be known in all of its greatness and glory, things that we are yet to see and to experience, but the accomplishment has been made, the devil has been defeated, our sin has been atoned for, life has been won for us, even as we just sung. And so, again, we pray together that as we come to this table, as we listen to you speak to us from your word, that you would fill our hearts with faith, with a sense of your glory, that you would enlighten our eyes, that we could behold wonderful things from your word and be strengthened by them to, to live for you as we leave this place and to give our hearts more fully and completely uh, to you and to your service and to the worship of your great name. And it's to that end that we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of First John. But as we do, the Christian church often has on uh, this particular day, uh, remind ourselves that He is risen. Very good job. Yes, He is risen indeed. That is our, that's our hope, that's our joy, that's our, our glory, that's our confidence and our certainty. And with that, we are going to take uh, this morning to consider the resurrection. To consider the resurrection, that is, of course, Easter is about celebration of the resurrection. It's not that on this particular day that Christ was resurrected, but it is the day that we corporately together as the professing church do remember that momentous and crucial event. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the central message of the Christian faith. It is essential to the message of the gospel that Christ has not only atoned for our sin, but that atonement was received by the Father and in, in, in proven in His resurrection from the dead. It's essential. The resurrection is to our faith, to the gospel, to every promise of God, and to our hope as believers. Just as a reminder of some of the ways uh, that the resurrection is central to our faith, it is the resurrection that proved that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the Son of God, that everything He claimed to be is true of Him. Romans 1.3 says He was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. It's central to our justification. We actually sing this in one of our songs in Romans 4.25. It says that He was raised for our justification. It gives us a certainty of future judgment in the establishment of Christ's kingdom. In Acts 17.31, the apostle preached this, that he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, the resurrection. The source of life in Christ for all his children is, comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes every sacrifice the most sane thing to do for those who know him and have trusted in him. 1 Corinthians 15, you're familiar with these words. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain and every sacrifice made for Christ is vain, is empty and is worthless. But because Christ has been raised, we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord." It is the resurrection that gives meaning to the entirety of the Christian life, to the entirety of Christian sacrifice, to the entirety of Christian hope. It is the one event and reality that establishes the truthfulness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ before all of the watching world to say, this is the Christ, this is the Son of God, this is the fulfillment of His promise, this alone is the Savior of the world, and this is the returning King. And all of that is bound and even more in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But this morning I want to take some time to consider one particular point, And that, again, in the book of 1 John, where we've been 
lightly looking over the last few weeks. And this morning I want to consider this, the fruit of the resurrection as it relates to believers as the children of God. As it relates to believers as the children of God. And so the, the big idea is this, that we'll look at three fruits of Christ's resurrection life in the children of God. So three fruits of Christ's resurrection life in the children of God. And we're going to do that by looking at 1 John chapter 2.28 and down to chapter 3, verse 3. So 1 John 2.28 down to verse 3 of chapter 3. Let me begin by reading it and then we'll look at it more closely. Verse 28. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And for this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not a year appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Marvelous words and a marvelous promise and marvelous truths. Let's consider first in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, this point, the first fruit, the fruit of confidence through righteous character. The fruit of confidence in Christ. The fruit of confidence in belonging to Christ through the righteous character of the children. He who was raised from the dead, he who is now at the right hand of the Father, he who is, is also the one who is returning to establish his kingdom, judge the earth, bring salvation to his own. And this is a reality that is at the forefront of the faith and the hope of the children of God. Notice what he says in verse 28. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame. in shame. This is related particularly to the presence of Christ. And so the first point under this is that the child of God lives in light of Christ's return. The child of God lives in light of living forever in the presence of God, of one day having to uniquely stand before Christ, the risen Christ, and in His presence. The language here is very graphic, it's very striking, it emphasizes the reality of his bodily presence, of his bodily presence, of his, the presence of him physically in his resurrected glory. It's a, it's a significant term. It, it's used in a variety of ways by John, just to kind of fill that out and bring that to the way that he uses it here. It's referring, he used it to refer to Christ as he was presented to Israel. He was manifest to Israel. His presence, the reality of his life, the reality of his words and his works and all of that was manifest to Israel. It was in their presence. They saw it. They observed it. They heard it. He was manifest as the Messiah, Messiah to the people of Israel. It's used to refer to the manifestation of his glory at Canaan when he, when he turned the jugs of water into wine, showing his divine power, the power uniquely to authenticate him as the promised Messiah to Israel. He was manifest to Israel in that event, the first of his signs. Most significantly, however, it's used to refer to the physical presence of Christ after the resurrection. And John uses it specifically uh, in the end of the gospel in referring to Christ manifesting himself to the apostles. And so in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he himself, manifested himself in this way, and it goes on to describe that. In verse 14, again, it says that this is the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That means then he who was with them before the cross, after the cross, after he was raised from the dead, was bodily, physically present in the, uh, before the disciples. He was seen, he was heard, he was touched, he was alive. Capturing the life of Christ as a whole, John referred to it this way back in the epistle, in, uh, in his epistle. 
We read this before in 1 John 1, 2. That the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. They're looking at it more at the spiritual realities that were made known and revealed in the life of Christ. Namely, who he was as the eternal Son of God, living in eternal relationship with the Father and drawing his people into that same relationship. And so here he's looking not back to the past and what he was manifested, but to the future and saying, as him who was manifest to Israel, as him who was manifest to the disciples after his resurrection, him who is the one who will come again and be manifest to his own and even before the world. He is going to be revealed again so that when he appears we may have confidence. And he says he wants this appearing of Christ, this coming into his presence, should be something that his children look forward to with confidence. It should be a sense of anticipation. It should produce in his children desire to be ready so that we would not be ashamed. Now, he says here in verse 28, he gives a command, abide in him. And he says, abide in him so that we will not shrink away from him at his coming. So abide in him, you're familiar with that language, is the idea of remaining obediently by faith before him, trusting in him, walking with him, in the, in the context of 1 John, walking in the light as he himself is in the light. But he says here, so that we will not be ashamed. Now how are we to understand this? It could be, it could be understood as referring to true believers and an exhortation to not to live in such a way that you won't be ashamed when he returns of, the, of a faithless or a lackluster or a dull life so that we would not want to shrink away from him when he is present before us again. It could also mean that, that it's referring to those who had no uh, or profess Christ in name only but don't really belong to him and so that when he comes there will be a great sense of shame of being outside of Christ, of not truly having belonged to him, of being exposed for what they really are. It could be taken in both ways. But the command here is, is specifically given to those who are described as little children. And it is given to them so that they would have an assurance of the reality of their salvation. But he reminds them that it must be a confidence that comes from the reality of that salvation that bears fruit in their life. The command to abide is the reminder of this. That the assurance of the reality of salvation does not come from a feeling or confidence in one's status, but from the reality of a transformed life that's lived in obedience to Christ. And this is important, because later in this, this section that begins here, he's going to remind them that there is an active effort on the part of Satan and his workers to deceive at this very point. If you look down to verse 7 of chapter 3, he says this, Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. Make sure no one deceives you. Why does he say that? Because, in fact, some are trying to deceive you. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Don't believe every spirit. There are spirits that go out. He says, and, that, and some are not from God. He says, Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what were these False prophets, what were these who were going out into the world who were trying to deceive those who were the children of God? How were they trying to deceive them? By essentially, in, in part, there's a, there was a doctrinal and ethical part to this, but they were trying to deceive them in terms of the moral reality of belonging to Christ, that obedience and holiness of life is not essential to knowing that you are a child of God. He says, don't be deceived. Some are going to go out. They're going to tell you that. But I want you to know, the other part of verse 7, that the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Don't be deceived. And it is certainly easy for many to be deceived in this area. The unregenerate heart is easily susceptible to this kind of false teaching because it appeals to fleshly desires. It says you can have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and still be called a child of God. And John says, no, you can't. You can't. Those two things are antithetical to one another. Each cancels out the other. 
You cannot claim to have this child of God status while still loving the world. You cannot rest in God's confidence and favor to you while still embracing those things that God came to redeem His people from. Namely, sin. Namely, sin. Now, there are many in this condition who have confidence of eternal life while not having the character of that life in them. And he wants to confront that. That might be some of you this morning. Who claim to have this status of being in the life of Christ, having the hope of eternal life, but having not the character of that life in you. It's those who hold to a sense of justification being counted right before God while rejecting the necessity of sanctification being conformed to the likeness of God. It's those who have a sense of security in Christ without the holiness of Christ working in them and in their life. So John begins with saying that we are going to be in His presence and the Christian realizes that, those who are truly in Christ and want to live in light of that fact in a way that they build confidence and not shame, that they are assured that we belong to Him. Secondly, under this, the child of God then bears the marks of Christ's resurrection life. They bear the mark of Him. He says, how do we know this? That we can have this confidence. He says in verse 29, if you know that He is righteous... You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Simply put, those who have the life of Christ bear a family likeness to Christ. Those who belong to Christ, those who have His life running through his, their veins, their spiritual veins as it were, those are the ones who will demonstrate it by bearing the character of that life. Again, he makes this very stark in chapter 3 verse 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin and it says that he came in fact to destroy the work of the devil he came to destroy the work of the devil at the end of verse 8 that's why he appeared the son of god appeared for this purpose to destroy the work of the devil which most simply is this, is those works that lead men and women into sin and a rejection of God is revealed in Scripture. And he says there's that presence that is out there, but Christ came actually to destroy sin, not to make someone comfortable in it. And therefore the reality of having embraced Christ by faith is that we live contrary to those things that the devil produces, which is sin, and live consistent with that which the Spirit of God is producing, and that is righteousness. And it is only by that righteous relationship, that righteousness in our life, that we can have confidence that we're children of God. So if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Everyone who has the habit of righteousness in their life. Now just one note here, and I want to move on. He says he practices righteousness is born of him. This is not to say that the practice of righteousness brings one into that life. It is to say the reality of righteousness in a person's life is what proves that God has given them this grace of new life, of regeneration. So the question is then, of course, not if we think of ourselves as Christians, is not the list of things that are sometimes given, the, the baptism card, the signing in the Bible, the church attendance and the service and go down the list. The question is, is do you see working in you a habit and a love and a desire to live consistent with who God is revealed in Christ? It's that, that simple. And if you do, then you can have confidence if you do see that. And if not, then you can't. But for those who do, he gives this marvelous promise. And here's the second point, And we'll spend more time here. The second fruit is this. The fruit of rest in God's love is His child. If that is in fact what we see, then we can have rest in that we know the love of God. So the first is the fruit of confidence in God in righteous character. The second is the fruit of rest in God's love as His child. And so He says, for those who do practice righteousness, for those whose life is marked by that transformation, for those who do have the life of Christ in them, who have shown that they have been born of Him, then he says these marvelous words in chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. And for this reason the world does not know us because it did not 
know Him. This is a marvelous statement of the love of God in bringing His children to Himself in Christ. Let's just notice a few points. One, that God's love is the wonder of God's children. When he says see here, it's, it could be taken as a command. But the way the idea is, is that he's calling uh, us, he's calling children and those who know him to consider, take notice of the great love that God the Father has shown on those who truly belong to him. Who truly belong to his son. The sense here is of the wonder and the lavishness of God's love. There's, there's almost a, a feeling of excitement behind John's words, an outburst of delighted praise. It is the most amazing reality to a believer, and the source of unending gratitude and humility is this, that God has loved me, even me, the sinner. God has loved me, even me, the sinner. God has shown such love. It's the love of the Father that He planned before the salvation or before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians, we know that. It's the love of the Son for, the, for those whom the Father gave Him. It's the love of the Spirit poured out into the hearts of those who belong to Him. Romans 5. And all of this flows from the fount of God's, the Father's love for His own in His Son. It's a love that is very particular. There's a particular Nature to this love. In other words, it's not a love for everyone. It's a love to those who are called the children of God. There is a general love of God for humanity. That's Matthew 5, for example, in common grace. He causes His Son to rise on His reign to fall on the good and the wicked. But that's not the love He's talking about here. Here He's talking about a very particular love of God that He has set on believers, on those who are children, those whom He grants life in His Son. It is those alone who have experienced that love, His saving love, His redeeming love, that can have this reaction, that could have this kind of response internally. Let me ask this question then, or ask it and then answer it. What is it about God's love then that provokes such a reaction? What is it about God's love that is so great? What is it about God's love that is so wonderful? What is it about God's love that should have such deep impact in the heart of His children? Let me give you two reasons. One is God's love to His children is overwhelming because of its contrast. Because of its contrast. Now this is missed by many who think of all people as God's children. Have you ever heard that? We're all God's children. The universal fatherhood of God. God is, everybody is God's children. He loves everybody the same. Everybody bears His image. And so all equally share in His love. That is not true, however. And Scripture doesn't speak that way, and neither does John here. The status of child, those who have received this great love, is defined in light of salvation. It's defined in light of salvation. In other words, to be a child of God is not to belong by God by virtue of creation. In fact, that we are His creation. It is to be a say that we belong to God by virtue of regeneration, new creation, salvation in His Son. That is what brings this status. So there is a great contrast. Look back down at the end of chapter 3. By contrast, the person who is not a child of God is a child of the devil. And these are strong words. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brethren. He doesn't say it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very subtle distinction. He says this is obvious, that there are children of God and there are children of the devil. Paul talks the same way in his epistles under inspiration of the Spirit. You're familiar with some of these. Ephesians 2.3, outside of Christ we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In Ephesians 5.6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3.6, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Jesus we're well familiar with. We've 
We've mentioned it several times, stated it this way to the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. So what does that mean? To say that Satan is the father of unbelievers and unbelievers, unregenerate people, both inside and outside of the church who have Satan as their father means that their character and their inward, spirit, their inward life reflects that of Satan and not of Christ. That's what it means. It means that there's a spiritual likeness to that which is outside of God, that which is in darkness and of spiritual death, and there is not a likeness to Christ and of God and the things that are holy and beautiful. And the significance of this is amplified not merely by stating that as a fact, but it means this, that those who are outside of Christ and are children of the devil and share in the spiritual nature of Satan also share in the same end of Satan. In other words, it's not merely to identify unbelievers here. It is to say that those who are of the same spiritual lineage of Satan will share in Satan's fate. If you're familiar with this, let me just read it to you. In chapter 25 of Matthew, he says this. He will say to those, this is after the return of Christ, He will say to those on His left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was prepared for the devil, but it will be filled with the devil, the demons, and all who are deceived by him. He says the same thing in Revelation. We are thrown in, in the final judgment, those who are outside of Christ, into the lake of fire, where Satan and the false prophet are also. So this is the natural state of every person in Adam. Nobody is born into this world as a child of God, save Christ, the Son of God. No one is born into this world as a child of God. We're born into this world as a child of Adam. That's the reality of it. The condition of each person is born into this world would by nature and left to that state only expect eternal judgment. And so this is the significance then for those who are children of God. It's the greatness of, it's against that backdrop that he says that you have received not the condemnation of the Father, but the love of the Father. Listen to how, again, words you're familiar with, but let me just mention this before moving on in Romans chapter 5. Just listen. He says, for why we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. In verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now much, now much more we shall be saved by his life. So consider this in considering why this love of God should be a tremendous fact. Is that outside of Christ, you were God's enemy. You were actually living, and if you are outside of Christ now in opposition to the infinite, holy God who created and sustains all things and is returning. You are living in active and open rebellion to Him. If you are here this morning, if someone who denies the truth of the gospel, then God says, as He will later in uh, 1 John 5, that you are calling God a liar. You are calling him a liar because you have not believed the testimony that he is born to his own son. And God takes that extremely personally. And that is the condition that all of us were born into. And yet here he says that for some who recognize that and who have experienced this life-giving reality, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Why? Because outside of that love you were a child of wrath. But now you're a child of God. Now you've received life in His Son. The testimony is this, that God has given us life, and this life is in His Son. So the first reason this love is so great is because the contrast of it. The contrast is to either be a child of God or a child of the devil. The second reason is because of the cost of this love. The death of His Son, and this is essential to understand. This status of love, child of God, this gift of love came because of the death of the Son. And it was a sovereign love. By this, now the one who does not love does not know God. God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us that God sent His Son 
His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, that he, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. This love that God has shown to us is sourced in God's own nature. It is His own infinite love. It is initiated by God. It is accomplished by God at the great cost of the suffering of His Son in the flesh. It's through the suffering inflicted on the Son for our sin, for our salvation, and for our everlasting joy. So when we think of this great love, consider this, that the suffering of eternal hell by those outside of Christ who will be endured by the children of the devil is itself not equivalent to the suffering of the Son of God incarnate on the cross. It's not equivalent to it. They're not the same. His was greater And this according to the eternal plan of the Father. We've looked at this before when he says that he was the propitiation for our sins. It is to say that his sacrifice, his death, and his suffering was a wrath-averting suffering. It turned away the wrath of God that is justly placed on those who are His rebellious image bearers and it was absorbed by His Son so that those who find refuge in His Son will never bear it themselves but only grace. One of the greatest mysteries, if not the greatest mystery of the Gospel is the depth of the suffering behind the anguished cry of the Lord, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this after three hours during the darkness where wave after wave of God's just wrath and anger for our sin was borne by the sinless Son of God as an expression of many things but including at the heart of it the love of God for His own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. That is to say that when, when Christ was on the cross... He treated him without hesitation, without the least bit of compromise, without the least bit of holding back. He treated the son hanging on the cross as if he were the very embodiment of sin, of everything that God hates, of everything that stands in rebellion to God, of everything that stands in line with the kingdom of Satan. He treated Christ as if he were the very embodiment of that. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him so that Christ's perfect righteousness even displayed in His suffering as the sinless Lamb of God could be given to us. And it was for our sin because of the love of the Father, the love of the Son for those given to Him who have been given life in Christ. One put it this way, I like The measure of God's particular love for His people is the measureless love of the Father for His Son. It is as if God said, Do you want to see how much I love my Son? Look at how I will love my people. And that was displayed on the cross. That was displayed in the cost of our redemption and the glories that would come after it. So we who were the objects of God's eternal wrath, we who were the objects of God's just displeasure and burning anger are now the objects of God's eternal and lavish love for the Son extended to the children. We who should rightly only expect judgment now come boldly before the throne of God as sons and daughters where we cry, Abba, Father. We come with confidence. We come with boldness because of the great love of the Father who has made that possible. And knowing this love makes us a stranger to the world. This is the second. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that us, even us who are by nature children of wrath, have been called children of God. We who alone deserve wrath have had, can trust in the Son who bore that wrath for us. Yes, we delight and we rejoice in the love of God who has shown that by His own sovereign mercy and grace. And we who have tasted this love are strangers to the world. Knowing this love of God as a child makes you a stranger to the world. It makes you a stranger to the world. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. The know here is the idea of perceive or understand. We are an oddity. We are strange to the world. They don't understand. The world 
did not recognize Christ, if you remember that Paul said in 2 Corinthians, they would not have crucified Him, the Lord of glory, had they have known who He really was. Which is part of behind Jesus' prayer to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't grasp the significance of what they're doing. Don't hold that particular weighty sin against them. And he says that the world doesn't know these things. And they don't know those who do know them. And so it's a mystery to them, even hated. It's a hateful to them, as we've looked at before. Now Jesus linked this just to the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, when he was talking about the paraclete coming, the Holy Spirit coming, the Spirit of truth coming, and he says the world didn't recognize. The world didn't know him. And he was referring to the presence of the Spirit in his own life and ministry. And he's saying the world, the world didn't perceive that. The Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive, verse 17, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit who is with you in fullness in my presence, in my person, is the Spirit who will be with you in a unique way when He abides in you after the resurrection. This is after Pentecost. And now those who have, by the Spirit, union with Christ and life in Christ are strangers to the world. Strangers to the world. He says they don't know you. But that's, that's part of what makes God's children stand out as His children, that we belong to a different kingdom. Let me give then a third. Well, let me just note on that. Why don't they know us? Because if you're not a Christian, if you're not a genuine believer, if you're not someone who has experienced regeneration and that life-giving power of the Spirit, then you simply don't understand the same feelings and sense of worship in the heart when you're presented with the glory of God in Christ. You just don't. You don't have and wake each morning with an internal sense and pressing reality of, the, of who God is in Christ so that you want to live consistent with Him. You don't have the Word of God working in you comfort and hope and strength as you go through the trials of life. You don't have an anticipation of glories to come. You don't have a particular delight in the presence of God's children. You don't have a sense of absolute holiness and a standard that cannot be broken. And so when you see those things, those who hold to that and know those realities, those who say they would suffer and give their life because of the love they've received in Christ, that's strange to the world. And it's even hated by the world, but it makes sense to the children of God. And it's even more. And let's note lastly here, fairly quickly. The third fruit is of purifying hope of the resurrection. So there's the, the fruit of confidence and righteous character. There's the fruit of rest in God's love, His infinite love accomplished for us in Christ. And there's the fruit of purifying hope in the resurrection. Beloved, now we are children of God. We are children of God. It's not merely a title, it's an internal reality. It's, it's the whole person, it's a new creation. It's the life of God in us. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. The life of Christ in the child of God is but a foretaste of the glory that is to come. Notice just briefly here what he says. We don't want to move past that. He says, beloved. That is a precious word. A precious word. Some want to translate this as dear friends. I saw several who want to translate that. But it is the idea of beloved. You remember in the Gospels, Christ is regularly the beloved. Now those who are in Christ are the beloved. The beloved in Christ. Those who are the loved of God. This is just yet another of those indicators of God's love for His Son extended to the children. But now the fullness of this love and the status of the believer and the Son, we take by faith what we anticipate is a future glory, a reality that is not yet known. It will be known only when we're fully like the Son. The fullness of the rapturous joy of being in Christ will only be known when we are fully like Christ in actuality. We have the reality of the life, the reality of the Spirit. Mike prayed it earlier that we are sealed by the Spirit. 
We are indwelled by the Spirit. We are united to Christ. And yet our experience of that is but a very, very, very dim reflection of what it will be. True, it's real, it's authentic, but it's dim compared to the glory that is to come. It's a glory beyond even what the apostle knew. Even John said, we don't know as yet what we will be. It's difficult, even impossible for us to imagine perfect righteousness, being in the presence of holy angels, the sight of the risen and exalted Christ. We can't even imagine what that is. We don't even know what we'll be like to be able to experience those things without fear, but with rapturous joy. And this is a reminder that Christians are not yet fully like Christ. Not yet. We bear a family resemblance, but it's faint. Even the righteous apostle cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Even he groaned within himself, waiting for what is to come. The habit and overall direction of a child of God is righteousness and holiness. And it's the longing of the Christian heart, but it's only known in part. We're not even close to what we shall be when we shed these bodies of sin and are fit with new bodies, eternal, spiritual, and immortal. That's the hope of the Christian. And look at how he describes it here. We know that when he appears, this is the idea again of his presence, his bodily presence. When he appears, this is future. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And the core idea is this, that we will be able to see him in all of his exalted glory with full spiritual and physical sight because the children will be shed from this body of sin and conformed to the body of his glory. Can you imagine that? I can't. But he tells us it's true. And we take it by faith. And we long for it. He says in Philippians, Paul says this is what he kept pressing on to. To lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. And ultimately it's this reality of which he was laid hold of. He says for our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform the body of our humble state. Into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has. Even to subject all things to himself. Can you imagine if we got that? That's true. Here he says it in this way, we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Like him in perfect holiness without sin. The full experience of sonship in the son. So magnificent is this language that some older theologians and some even among the Orthodox Church are in the heritage of that. Uh, developed a doctrine called deification or another term theosis and that is the idea uh, it's been wrongly understood many times but it was the idea that it was that was taken too far by some in terms of our likeness to Christ and it made out the future state of believers to be almost divine it's not what the early church fathers meant but sometimes the language wasn't our always guarded let me give you an example there's others Athanasius said quote for he was made man that we might be made gods now, he didn't mean that we become gods. What he meant, though, he was trying to capture the sense of how God-like, how like God his creatures will be in glorification and in redemption. Now, through the history of the church, that sometimes taken too far. But they were trying to capture what was being said here. A more contemporary expression of it is this. Now, I quote, because Jesus shared in our humanity fully, whatever he became as a resurrected human being, we also will become. You get that? Whatever he became as a resurrected human being, we are conformed to the body of that glory, and that's what we will be through his humanity. That is to say this. We will be as like and as intimately near to God as a creature can be. Or put another way, we will be as like and near to God through union with Christ that His humanity can bring us. As possible as it is to be like God and never cross that barrier over between the distinction of a creature and a creator. That's what we share. It's the ultimate end of our salvation. The word that we're more familiar with in this is glorification. Glorification. It's the ultimate end of our salvation. It's why God created man to begin with and anything else in his creation. That is the theater of his glory, accomplishing his purposes. 
Listen to how he says it in Romans. Again, you're familiar, but let's just consider it under this point. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Here it is. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Foreknew speaks of His intentional determination to enter into relationship with here. He knew personally, even before He created anything, those whom He would create and redeem and bring to His Son, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's that glorification here. It is the ultimate end of being made in the image of God. It is the ultimate expression of the image of God in humanity that was perfectly revealed in his Son, that we will, by union with their Son, know and reflect for all of eternity. It's put in this way in some other places. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is the language. It says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, listen, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. John puts it this way at the end of Revelation. There will no longer be any curse, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. Verse 4 of 22. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. That is a statement of intimate ownership and belonging and closeness and glory and nearness in proximity and in fullness of who He is as Redeemer. We'll see his face. That's the end. That's the point of the resurrection. That was the point of his coming. That's the point of the incarnation. That was the point of the atonement. That's the point of the resurrection. That's the point of the sending of the Spirit. That's the point of the return of Christ is to bring us into this full experience of likeness to himself. Glory is beyond what we can imagine. And this is the deep Deep, deep reality that is the core of the hope of the child of God. And it produces in us, who know Him, who are children, a greater and greater likeness to Him. So verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The clearer this hope, the clearer our hope in Christ, the clearer our thoughts of what we will be, is the more sanctifying power it has, the more it begins to shape the joy, affections, and longings of the believer, and the more the believer, who is the true child of God, becomes less and less like the world and less and less attached to the world. That's just how it works. The world here, speaking of that entire complex of human structures and cultures and ideologies that stand in opposition to God, the Creator. All that is holy and all that is good. So the more clearly the believer perceives and understands the glory of Christ to be revealed, the reality of our being conformed to His glory, the more distasteful, vain, and uninteresting the enticements of the world become. And the more sweet and wonderful are the joys of obedience and likeness to Him. So what is our main prayer in sanctification? Is this. That the Spirit of God would show us the glory of Christ. And the glory of who we are in Christ. Because as we gaze upon the glory of God in Christ, as we see it and have more spiritual perception of it, the more like Him we become and the less like the world. And it just becomes less interesting to gain this world. And more of a longing of our heart to be with Christ. That's the internal reality of a child of God. And so again, Paul could say, I press on. So that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What was he laid hold of? This. This. To be like him. To be conformed to him. To be in his kingdom. To be glorified with Christ. The deepest longing of the child then again is to see him just as he is. 
to be fully in the glory of the physical, bodily, resurrected Christ and to be so without sin, to have the veil fully removed. So this hope is central to what it means to be a Christian. It's grounded in the promise of God. It's made a reality in the person and work of the Son. It's made certain in our hearts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So these are the fruits then of what it means to be a child of God who has participated in the resurrection glory of Christ. And so, as we come to the table particularly, we ask ourselves the question, does that define who you are internally? Does that internally Does that define in any way connect to the true reality of your longings and your desires, your loves, your affections? Not perfectly. We confess our sin because we daily sin and we daily go to him who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We struggle, we fight, we fail, we're discouraged, but always looking to the Savior in the hope that one day the struggle will be over. One day we will be like him, which is what we truly want. That's the internal reality of a believer once that. If you can be as happy in the world as you can be in the church, then you're not a part of the church. You're a part of the world. If you can be as happy in the company of those who don't love Christ as you can those who profess love to Christ, then guess what? You don't love Christ. You don't. But if there is that uniqueness of saying no, You stumble I may, but there's nothing that delights me as much as seeing Christ, singing to Him. And it instills in me a desire to be like Him and to serve Him and to give my life to Him. And it frustrates me that I don't. If that's true of you, then the table is for you. It's a reminder for you of His kingdom, of His coming, of His love, of His grace, of the certainty that we one day will stand in his presence. Can you imagine? We should meditate on that. I have been encouraged even more lately to say, asking the Lord to help me to meditate on that by faith, to enlighten my eyes. I pray that that would be the same for you too. If you are outside of Christ and those realities are strange to you and you can leave here and easily forget them, then... The prayer is to ask God to impress it deeply upon your heart because this is reality. So let me pray and then we'll come to the table. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love. How can we begin to fully grasp this? We can't of our own. We ask you by your spirit to be our teacher. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and enlighten our eyes and unfold to us the glories of Christ. Help us to pull away our distracted minds from this world and to think and to set them on the world to come and the things above. Help us to gain perspective according to reality by thinking of these truths that one day, Christ, you will appear. And when you do in that day of the great resurrection, we will be like you physically and with bodies because uh, conformed to the body of your glory, fit to be in your presence eternally, without sin, immortal, glorious, spiritual bodies. Help us to think on these things and make us more like you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.